Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast, episode 85. And last week I mentioned that I was going to do more of a breakdown of my Vegas trip and my interview with Sarah Herring. I'm going to put that on hold another week. Uh, life just kind of took me over this last week and I wasn't able to put together my uh, kind of analysis of the week and some of the hands that I that I ran into. So I'll, I'm planning on doing that next week. We'll see how that goes. So this week, instead, I'm going to bump up a interview that I did with poker pro and training coach Alec Torelli. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. So we're going to hear from our sponsor. And then when we come back from that, you will hear from uh, the interview that I had with Alec Torelli. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. Well, everybody, as promised, I am here with Alec Torelli, and uh, Alec is joining us from Italy. Uh, good morning, Alec. Hey, good afternoon. <laughs> good, <laughs> exactly up? right. <laughs> so now you're sort of a world traveler. I was looking at some of your stuff, and you're kind of just traveling the world doing uh, the poker stuff, doing some speaking stuff. You're just kind of all over the place all the time. Yeah, that's always been my thing. You know, one of the things that drew me to poker when I was 16 and 18 was that I could play events in all different parts of the world. And so I was as enthralled about the lifestyle that poker allowed me to live as I was about the game itself. And so for me, it was always about choosing amazing destinations that allowed poker that was in a place that I wanted to see as well. And this way I could, you know, hit two birds with one stone. And a lot of the time, you know, I would go for the poker and if I could break even in an event and just pay for my vacation, that was a win for me. And I lived my life like that for many years. And then, you know, I've still to some extent do that. I just go to cool places where there's poker and play when I can, but I try to make a lifestyle of it first and foremost. So what are, what are some of those coolest places that you visited that you're saying, man, I, I'll come back here as much as I can, or I highly recommend everybody checks this place out? So I've been lucky. I've been, I've been to over 40 countries now, and a lot of them were for poker. But honestly, some of the coolest places I visited weren't poker places. And I, I, I know that might not be the, the, the favorite answer, but, but that's sort of my truth. And I think that also, you know, it could be because when I wasn't playing poker, I, you know, I had more time to explore those places. But also, I think just objectively, places like the south of France in, in the spring or Norway in the summer or Bali, Indonesia uh, in their winter, which is coincidentally our, our summer, uh, are, were my favorite places to explore. And, and there were no poker in any of those places. Um, but poker-wise, uh, that's a good question. I think Melbourne, Australia is at the top of my list, especially because it's summer there. Uh, you know, the hotel is incredible and there's the tennis at the same place as the hotel. I'm an avid tennis fan. So that was incredible to be walking around the lobby and seeing, you know, people that I look up to and, and other sports that are, that are role models of mine. Um, and then just to be the, in, in Melbourne in the middle of summer was, was incredible. So I think that's, you know, the prime location to play poker. Unfortunately, I haven't been there in, in, in many years, four or five years, five, six years, but, um, I loved it out there and I actually loved it so much that I ended up living there. I stayed there for, for uh, nine months. Huh. Um, so it was an incredible spot and that's, that's definitely the top of my list. 
Sounds awesome. So have you never been to to Africa by any chance? I, I've been there four times. I do humanitarian work down there. And I always tell people, if you're able to travel places, go to Africa, go on the Serengeti, check that place out. It's unbelievable. Have you ever uh, been to that continent? That's incredible. And I would love to go there. It's on my bucket list. I just haven't been. It's an entire continent that I haven't explored. And, um, you know, gosh, the world's so big. I haven't even been right. to... I haven't even been to South America either, except for Costa Rica and Aruba. So like, you know, there's two whole continents there that you have yet to explore. And most of the, you know, all the countries I've been to are Europe and Asia um, and Australia and the U.S., you know. So I've only been to a few of the continents even to to say the least. And so I feel like, you know, even though I've been um, to 40 some countries, I'm I'm just getting started. You know, there's just so much to see in totally different part of the world. Yeah, forty countries is just a good start, basically. So, so where do you? Yeah, totally. Is there a place that you actually call home then, or do you feel like you have a few homes around the world? More the second one. It sort of depends on the year. So, um, you know, my early twenties, I was based largely in the U.S. um, in Vegas, and you know, my mid late twenties, I was based largely in Macau. playing high stakes poker out there from 2012, 2016. And then the last year I've been in Italy uh, a bit more than, than other years uh, spending like four or five months a year out here. I've always spent a lot of, a lot of time out here because I moved out here when I was 24 um, just because I have family roots that are Italian. I love the culture. I've always wanted to learn the language. It was a uh, high on my bucket list. Something that I wanted to do uh, in my twenties was move to Italy and learn Italian. And I, you know, serendipitously met my wife, uh, that trip. And she was actually uh, teaching at the university where I was going to learn Italian. I walked into her office randomly one day and that changed the trajectory of my life. I ended up, you know, spending a lot more time in Italy. We spend time here every year with her and her family. And so we have a place here and, um, I live in Italy part-time now. So, uh, that's crazy sort of surreal experience. And, um, so yeah, you know, I, I spend some time in Italy and then, you know, when I'm in the U S New York, Vegas, LA, uh, my family's from California, uh, Vegas is Vegas. And then, you know, we, we stay in New York some of the time too. So, uh, it just really depends on the year and, and, and like what's going on. Um, you know, where I, where poker takes me, where I have an event, it just, we try and just live one day at a time. And like, to be honest, um, I have plans next month, but only because I have a speaking obligation. But other than that, we usually don't plan more than, you know, a week or two ahead where we're going to be at any given time. And that's sort of what I love the most about being able to live a life with flexibility is that, you know, it's, you don't know what's going to happen. It's always sort of exciting. So it just really depends. Yeah. Super, it's super fascinating to me is my, my wife and I are both fourth generation in the same small town in, in East central Minnesota. And so, you know, and we love that. We love the small town feel. We love all of those things, but it's so interesting to to talk to people that are, man, just kind of living it one, one, two weeks at a time and we'll see where we're going to live next year. You know, that kind of thing. It's always super fascinating. So it sounds like a very interesting life. We can talk, talk hours about that deal, but I kind of want to go back to, uh, back to the beginning of your poker career. I know that it's sort of well-documented that you kind of fell in love with poker when you're like 16 or so, and then you went to SMU and you, you ended up leaving SMU to pursue poker. Tell me a little bit about that journey, but but more so, how did you know that, or maybe you didn't know, but how did you really decide that I'm going to pursue poker? And Sorry, you uh, kind of cut out there. I heard oh, you say, tell t- tell you more about the beginning of my journey as a poker player and how I knew that poker was right for me. 
Yeah. So yeah, knowing knowing that you kind of you know your your journey is pretty well documented as far as at, at a pretty young age you, you, know, you fell in love with poker. You decided to leave yes. SMU to pursue poker. How did you yep. know that 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 was going to be the path that you wanted to take, or how are you able to actually make that happen? Um, well, you know, I think I think knowing what you want to do is almost so almost the easy part. Like I think there's a lot of noise in society. And if you really like sit with your own silence and you listen to your heart and intuition, you, you almost always know what you actually want. You know what the right answer is. The hard part is that there's other voices in your head that are conflicting with what your true wants are. And that could be the voice of your parents, the voice of your teachers, the voice of your girlfriend, the voice of your friends that all have their own ideas and opinions about what it is that you should do. And so with something like poker, it was like, I always, I knew that I wanted to play poker. I knew that I wanted to give this a shot. I was 18 years old. I had saved up 30,000 or whatever it was at the time. And I thought I was good enough to do it. And I knew I wanted to give it a shot. It was just finding the courage to make my own desires speak louder than the opinions and judgment and criticism of everyone else around me that was telling me, I couldn't do it or that it was a stupid decision or that I was crazy. And so that's really the game. It's, 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 you know, most people know, like if you ask them and they, they work a job they don't like or something and you say, well, what do you, what is it that you want to do? They, they'll, they'll tell you. It's just, there's that friction in between what they actually want to do and taking action to do it. And that's where I think the magic happens. That's where the, the, the results happen. And for me, it was just about, you know, silencing the noise around me and making sure that my inner voice spoke louder than everybody else's combined. And it wasn't like a completely frivolous decision. Like, you know, I'm just going to go out on a whim and drop everything and play poker. It was like calculated, you know, I had proven my success. I had made money. I was beating some of the biggest games online at the time. Um, I'd done well in some tournaments. I was, you know, the best player in my social circle of friends. I was playing in you know, 18 year old casinos and winning there. So like I was having all this positive reinforcement and feedback from the test drive that I did. And I also weighed my pros and cons. I mean, I knew that, okay, the best case scenario is that I make it and I get to live my dream of traveling the world playing poker. Um, I also remember reading a book by Phil Helmuth when he said he dropped out of school when he was 18 and he had $20,000 saved. I was, you know, 18 and had at least that saved as well. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, if this is where the best in the world started, I'm in that same spot. Like that's not to say I'm going to become that, but you know, these are benchmarks I had that I was, you know, receiving inputs and feedback from. And I was saying, okay, well, you know, he took a shot then, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's a reasonable time to do it. Right. Someone else did it before me. Um, And then I, I, I evaluated my worst case scenario. It was like, okay, well, what happens if I fail? If I fail, I lose all my money. And I'm right back at SMU. I'm 19 instead of 18. And I'm just one year behind all the people around me. Like, they're going to get a job at 22. I'm going to get a job at 23 or whatever it is. I'm going to start my career one year later. And so the worst case scenario wasn't that bad. I lost a year of my time. But I, I, I was rich in time. I, I wasn't rich in money, but I was rich in time. I was 18 years old. I mean, I had more time than everybody in the world. So I was like, I could afford to risk this time for the expense, for the potential of, you know, pursuing my dream. And I, I did, and it paid off for me. Yeah. And I think being able to do that at a young age, obviously you have far less 
um, I, I don't want to say responsibilities, but in some ways, you know, you didn't, totally. you didn't have way less responsibility. You didn't, you didn't have a family. You didn't have some of those things where I think there's those of us who discovered poker later in life. Um, even if we don't think we can become, you know, what you became or what Phil became, uh, this idea of kind of chasing your dream in general, whether it's poker or not, is, is much more difficult as you, as you layer on those responsibilities. So for you at your young age, to be able to have the maturity to, to kind of look, look at that or have the counselor or whatever to say, you know, best case, worst case, boy, the upside here is a lot, has a lot more potential than the downside risk. Uh, let's, let's go for this. I think that's a, that's a great level of maturity or you had great advisors around you at that young age. Thank you. Actually, you know, like I just, my mom just instilled a lot of confidence in me from a young age that I should, that I could be what I wanted to be. And if I worked hard, I could achieve my dreams. So that came from my mom that gave me that confidence. But at the time, and that was just, you know, luck. I was just dealt that hand, right? Like I didn't do anything to to deserve that. I just got dealt a great influence in my life from a young age that, that instilled that confidence in me. But at the time, you know, all the, all the people around me were against, you know, everyone that I told said I was crazy. Um, so not, not a single person was like, oh, you know, this is a great decision. You're going to crush it. Like, even if they thought I could win and they, they saw that I was good at poker, they just were like, okay, you're good at poker, but you can't just throw everything away or to them throw, throwing everything away was dropping out of school, um, to pursue this frivolous sort of, sort of thing. And, and, and mind you, this was 2005. Um, when, you know, there, there wasn't poker like there is today, you know, like there wasn't like a massive community of, you know, young professionals that were on television. And so it, it was even more, uh, esoteric than it is today. And so, uh, I, like I said, it just comes back to being dealt that great hand of, you know, my mom instilling that courage, but it, it, there, there are times in life when like, you know, there aren't people, around you. But if you, you know, you kind of listen to your gut and you really know what the right decision is, you know, only you can know that, you know, no one else can know that for you. And so ultimately it's your opinion of what is right that matters the most. And I, and I encourage people to listen to that for themselves. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so when you think about, you know, your start in poker and where you've gotten to today, and we'll talk a little bit about some of those things, sure. uh, obviously to get to the top of your profession, you know, people need to work hard. That's always, it's always part of the deal, but did you, do you consider yourself uh, more or less a poker prodigy uh, because at your young age, you kind of just got it and things kind of clicked or was it a result of hard work or was it, was it a result of, you know, you were always playing strategy games as a young kid or what, what do you kind of credit for you being able to kind of grab hold of this at a young age and actually, you know, kind of, kind of make it work? Yeah. Can you hear me? Let's make sure yeah. I didn't cut out. Yep. Okay. So it's, it's a marriage of all those things really. Like Let's start. Okay. So so there's always two sort of components, right? Two sort of like pillars of success. There's the hand you're dealt and there's how you play the hand. Let's first talk about the hand I was dealt. Uh, I was, you know, taught chess at a very young age. I studied chess, even though I was never very good, but I loved like strategy games and puzzle games. And so my dad taught me chess and played, you know, chess with me when I was young. And I went to like some chess camps and stuff like that. So I was, you know, prone to, playing those games and I also think I had like like a natural like as much as you can like I think I had a natural proclivity or affinity for poker um and I would always gamble as a kid and I know that sounds weird but like I was gambling on random events when I was 10 and an example of that would be betting on 
sports games, betting on um, pogs. If you guys remember pogs and like slammers and keenies and stuff like that, I would, I would play with those. And we play for keeps. Like most people played for fun. Like I would win and lose, you know, precious pog sets like in my adolescence. And I would like, you know, accumulate like double my pog net worth in a month or a week. If I would play well, you know, it's like we had like large, I got used to like fluctuations and winning and losing and like smart risk taking. I would play horse uh, at the basketball courts. Uh, I have countless examples. I would bet who could hold their breath longer. I would bet who could swim to the other side of the pool faster. Like we would bet on numerous trivialities of life. And I would do that from a very young age. And I would always bet with people that were older than me. And I, I usually lost. Uh, and so I got very good at, at betting, even though I wasn't as like, you know, and there's a big difference between three years when you're 10 and the other guy's 13. Like you're just drawing dead in so many physical activities, like swimming fast or holding your breath or basketball. Like it's so hard to overcome that age gap when he has 30% more life than you. You know, mm-hmm. and so uh, I remember one guy in specific particular that I would lose to all the time, and um, and that just made me good at betting. And so, like when it came time to play poker, I would just had an affinity for that. Um, then let's talk. So that was the hand I was dealt to some extent. I don't know why I started betting at a young age. It, it just was like it felt natural to me. It was just like what we did. Like I remember one time, like there was three minutes left in a hockey game. And the team was down by one. And my friend gave me like ridiculous odds that the team that was down by one would win. And I was like, okay, they're not a favorite to win, but he gave me like 25 to one, like something ridiculous. And so I bet like $10 and I won like $250. I was like 10 years old, you know, and the team came back and won. and It was a miracle. And like, I thought it was a genius, but there was luck involved. But like, I just remember these moments where like, I just was building a bankroll at 12 and 13 and 14 that I would let later use for poker. Um, so then let's talk about like how I played the hand, right? That was the hand I was dealt. I was, you know, a lot of luck involved um, to be around people that would bet with me and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of the hand, how I played the hand and like what I did to, to capitalize, like I spent every waking free hour studying poker. And that's just the truth. Like from 16 even up until this day, I still study poker, but like there was a period where like I literally didn't put down my computer. And I mean that when I started to play online poker, like I didn't take days off of thinking about or obsessing about or studying or talking or reading or practicing poker from like when I discovered it until like 20. That was just like four straight years. And even after that, like I took a week off and then I went back for another like four years. Like I literally hmm. just everything poker i like would have dreams where i'd see poker hands replaying in my mind because of the amount of waking hours i spent playing poker and so like i would run equity calculations all the time i would talk to who i thought were the best players in the world and i would learn from them and i would you know study with them and we'd talk poker hands and i would play next to them and they'd watch me play and i'd watch them play and you know i just got to be like a sponge and absorb strategy from all the best players around in the world and like that that that's how I played my hand to make sure that I could reach the top of the industry and stay there. And so it was easy in a way in that scenario, because you're like a product of your, your, your environment. And so it was easy to get ahead of the curve being around those people and dedicating all of my time and effort and life to it at 18 when I had, 
nothing to do all day every day except play poker i literally could play 60 80 hours a week which i did i'm sure i played i'm sure i spent i'm not going to say played poker because i studied and talked about it as well and read but i'm sure i spent 60 plus hours a week for years probably a decade so sort of, sort of the perfect the perfect storm. You got you got dealt pocket aces, and you you know you 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 flopped it, flopped yeah. flopped them, and somebody you know had a slush draw or whatever it is. But sort yeah, of the and so where, it's a combination of those things. You know, yeah. like I got dealt a great hand, and I think I played my hand well. the best way possible. And you played yeah. it well, and yeah, that's, I think that's it. One of the things I talk about quite a bit is is this idea of passion, and um, you know, as somebody who sort of always likes to get involved in new things, one of the questions that I've been asking myself and asking others is. Uh, when, when you have a passion, can you discern if it's actually, uh, are you passionate about the core thing or are you passionate about the idea of something? And I think one of the questions that I get quite a bit as, as a host of the podcast and people want to want to know is, you know, how do I become a pro poker player or those sorts of things? And of course, I'm not one, so it's hard for me to discern that. But I think a lot of us or a lot of people are passionate about the idea of becoming a, a pro player versus really passionate about playing poker in the way that you're talking about. And I think, you know, what I hear in you is, man, it was just the, the passion for the game was just there. It wasn't, it didn't start with the passion for the idea of becoming pro. It was just passion for the game. And I think that's where a lot of those things really come from is that root core passion. Yeah, you have to not have money be your primary drive. And I feel like half the people that say they want to yeah. be pros have already lost because they are in it for the money and you're never going to be, you're only going to be so good if you're in it for the money. I always said, like, I don't care about the main of winning the, the, the money. I just want to win the main event or like, I don't care about, you know, the money. That's just a way of keeping score. I want to be rich because being rich means I'm a good player, not because I want to buy shit. Mm-hmm. Like that was always my truth. I was like, if we play for goldfish, I want to be fat. Like I didn't care Money was just what we used. I mean, that was the way we kept scoring basketball. It was points and wins, and we had dollars. Like, that's how I saw it. I didn't see money as any other way except a tool to allow me to reach the highest levels in my, in my profession. And so I was obsessed with the merit of the game. And that's always what drove me to get better and better. And if you're not at, and you know, if you're questioning, listening to this right now, and you're unsure, you're, you're not driven by the merit of the game as much as I think you need to be in order to be a professional in 2018. So if there's like any doubt, then that doubt should speak loudly because there shouldn't be doubt. It's kind of like you're debating on whether or not to marry this woman. You shouldn't really be debating. It should just be like an obvious yes. And like the debate, the fact that there's debate alone means it's probably not right. Like I didn't, I didn't write out a list of pros and cons when I asked my wife to marry me. It was just like, obviously the right decision. And so in the same way, I feel like major events in your life are like that, uh, like where you're going to live, who you're going to marry, what you want to do with your life. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's just got to feel right. And I, and I don't know how else to say it. It just has to be the most obvious in front of your face type of thing that like there is no other option. Like you couldn't imagine another reality. And if that's not your truth, you shouldn't be playing poker professionally in my opinion. It's too much work. It's way too hard. It's way too hard to make an easy living doing it. And there's way, there's so many other things that you could do 
and I would encourage people to find the thing that they feel the most excited about, you know, uh, and make sure you're in it for the, for the right reasons. Yeah, I totally agree. That's exactly what I was going to say. You, you couldn't imagine life without your wife or you couldn't imagine life without poker or you couldn't imagine life without it involving Italy or whatever it is. I think that's, that's how you can really help uh, hone in on what your passions are. So let's, let's shift gears. Uh, we only have a little totally. bit of time and this, this is fantastic. I, I've got a lot of connection with you. I'd love to talk more about, about a lot of what you just shared. And I know you do some, speaking awesome. Thank about, you. You do some speaking about that. So I, I'm super intrigued by that, but let's, let's shift gears and get a little bit more into the, the actual poker side of it. I know, uh, you know, sure. a lot of our listeners are looking for some of those, some of those tips and, and, you know, our primary listeners are those that are, you know, recreational players looking to move up in stakes and, uh, you know, wherever those are, some of them are, you know, work are playing at the bar, playing at home games, want to move to the casino and some are playing, you know, the $280 tournaments, they want to play the 1100s and some are playing the 1100s, want to play the 10,000s. And so it's always about how do we get to that next level? And what I totally. want to start with, with you is, you know, as you're playing, uh, you know, what are still some of those key mistakes that you're seeing? If, if you were to say, you know, you, you recognize all these mistakes, you sort of categorize them. What are the, what are the biggest mistakes that you still see people saying? See, uh, so the no. biggest mistake that I see people make, and this has been true. I made a video about this five years ago. Uh, I think five, four or five years ago. Uh, and it's still as relevant today is that people just play too many hands. Uh, and this is a mistake that pros and amateurs make alike is that they just play too many hands. They're too loose. They play too many hands pre-flop. They play too many hands on the flop, too many hands on the turn, too many call too much on the river. Like they're just too loose. Um, and so that's the biggest mistake that I see day in and day out. Um, it's mainly, you know, it starts with pre-flop. And if you think about, you know, the rest of every decision you make, no decision you make on the turn or the river or the flop can happen unless you make the decision pre-flop. And that's why I like to encourage people to think about their hands like a funnel. It starts very wide at the top and it gets narrower as the hand progresses. And so at the top of the funnel is pre-flop and you can play a lot of hands pre-flop. And as you move down the hand on the flop, the turn and the river, I created this idea of a hand range funnel because every time you take a different action, your hand range, your types of hands that you have or your opponent has gets narrower. It can never get wider. You can never have a hand on the river that you don't have preflop. So preflop, you play a lot of hands or not a lot of hands. You play the most amount of hands. And as you progress through the hand, your types of hands you should play get smaller and smaller. And so the biggest mistake I see that is that people's funnels are too wide. They just play too many hands in too many situations. And that's why um, at Conscious Poker, we've made content available for free for people to download um, that helps them decide what hands to play from which position and how to adjust that situ that strategy to your own situation based on the types of games you're in, whether you're in a cash game, whether you're in a tournament, whether you're deep stacked, whether you're short stacked, whether you're in position or out of position. Um, it's a guide and hand range charts that people can download for free at ConsciousPoker.com that just makes that gives them that information. Uh, and then we also have a hand range funnel that allows people to basically understand how to hand read and how to think through putting their opponents on hands and how to understand what their opponents are likely to have in any given situation. And these are the mistakes that I see the most often. And that's why we created free content to make it available to people because I got asked that question like 400 times, you know, where, what, what, what's the one thing I could do to improve or what's, you know, where should I spend? I'm look, I'm a busy guy. Everybody's busy. I respect everyone's time. I know that everyone only has a limited amount of time to spend on poker. So my whole thing was 
where's the 80-20 approach? What is the one or two or three things people can do that's going to give them 80% of the impact with 20% of the results? And that, that formula is really closer to 90-10. Uh, and so that's, that's what I believe is what I'm seeing the most often in my coaching when I'm talking to readers and students and clients and when I'm playing in the field, even at the high, higher levels, or when I'm coaching, playing some 5'10 or whatever, 2'5", whatever it is, I'm seeing that all the time, repeatedly, in and day in and day out. And so that's why we make content available uh, for free about that. And that's, that's where I always go back to and I kind of start there as the foundation for, you know, the one or two things people can do to improve. Oh, so good. Let me, let me follow up on that with a, a question about sure. motivation, if I can. I, I'm curious what you think the motivation is for people playing too many hands. Is it they are just overvaluing hands that don't have as much value as they think? Are they bored? Are they regretting that, you know, boy, last hand I didn't play my 4-8 and I would have flopped a full house? I mean, what, what do you think is that motivation or why do you think people are playing too many hands? Patience, man. I mean, I think the biggest reason when you, when you get to the root cause of why someone makes a decision, it's patience. A lot of people actually know that they shouldn't play a hand. Like when you ask them, why'd you play that hand? They're like, well, I normally don't, but insert BS excuse here. But I haven't had a hand with, I haven't had anything over a jack in the last hour. Yeah. Like it's the best hand I got in two hours. Like, so does that make it profitable? Like, you know, like, so like what, like, there's just all this sort of rationale. And like when I play with my clients, like at the table, I'll be like, you know, playing with them. And then afterwards we'll review the session and I'll be like, so let's talk about that hand. The, the, you know, Jack seven suited. Why were you in there pre-flop with like, they're like, Oh, I got unlucky with this hand on the river or, Oh, like that hand was standard. I'm like, well, let's go back to pre-flop. Why did you decide to call the raise with that? And they're like, you know, what is the best hand I got or whatever? I don't normally play, but like that sort of like, I don't normally play it. It was just this one time. Like if I had a dollar for every time someone said that I just wouldn't play poker anymore. I would just, you know, take dollars from people that said that. So it's like, you see that stuff so often. And, um, and I think it's just patience. Like some people don't know. So then, and then there's the other side of the coin, which is that some people just genuinely overvalue hands. They actually, you know, think that a certain hand is better than it is. And so that's why we made those preflop charts available to people because then they could actually have all the information where they can say, okay, these are the hands I should play in each position, commit those to memory, like you do a multiplication chart. And then there's really no excuse about the information. But even with that information, when people have it, they're still sometimes prone to playing hands they shouldn't. And that's, that's just a patience and a discipline thing. And I think people um, get caught up in live poker with this idea that they should be stimulated every minute. Like they're there mm. for entertainment and, and poker, frankly, when it's played correctly in a live environment is rather boring because you're going to fold 90% of the time. Like you're going to literally play two hands an hour, three hands an hour. And that's boring. Like, what are you doing the other 55 minutes? You're like, watching what other people do, waiting for your opportunity, setting up your next move, learning information, making reads, and not getting distracted on your technology. Like, it, it's boring. That's why people, everybody's on their phone when you see people play poker because they, like, they want to be stimulated and a way to become stimulated instantly and have that instant gratification is to play a hand that you shouldn't play. And so I think it's about going into the game with a different mindset. Like, when I go to the poker table, I don't expect to be entertained. I expect to be you know, work on my patience as a meditation 
because that's what it is for me. You know, poker is just like a daily meditation of patience. Hmm. Um, and and I, I go in with that mindset because that's the reality that I'm going to experience if I'm going to play well. Oh, so good. Yeah, it's so good. And, and sort of this, this idea of either the meditation side or saying I'm going to be stimulated by trying to get reads on people or trying to do a, a funneling hand range. Like I know you, you talk about funneling and, you know, maybe, maybe those are the things rather than I'm going to look for my engagement from the action. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's really good. So let me, uh, let me shotgun a few things at you. I just going to throw out a couple, uh, couple of phrases here and just kind of curious what your, your take is on this. If I were to mention GTO versus exploitative play. Oh, did I lose you there, Alec? Yeah. So if you were to mention GTO, what yeah, would I sorry. say? Just kind of give you some, give me some shotgun responses to this. Uh, there's, there's always people talking about GTO versus exploitative play. You know, what, what's your, what's your take on, on, on that argument? Look, I use both. Like, you know, at the highest levels, you need a lot of GTO. It's really important. More percentage of the people you're playing against are going to be players with whom you have to adopt the GTO strategy because they're playing so well that you're not really going to be exploiting them. You're not just going to like raise pre-flops, see about the flop and exploit them. A lot of the people listening though, playing in small stakes games might only have one or two players at the table with whom GTO will apply. The rest of the players... And, and also GTO is on a sliding scale where it might apply against everybody in, you know, 10% of the time, but the other 80, 90, 50, 50 70, 80% of the time, whatever it is, you're going to be playing exploitative poker because they're not going to be playing balanced enough that you have to worry about GTO. For example, on the flop, when you see bet, you have to think about GTO. You can't, you can't just C-bet 100% of flops. Otherwise, you're going to be unbalanced. You need to start balancing your range when you're C-betting flops because people have adjusted. Poker has gotten more difficult 2018. You can't just raise pre-flop, C-bet the flop, and expect to win every pot like you could in 2005. So that's a scenario where it matters, and it matters against a lot of players. It, it matters against an increasing number of the player pool situations where you're check raise bluffing the river like gto doesn't matter as much because people aren't balanced there you're calling a check raise all in on the river people aren't having balanced ranges they they're way unbalanced and so you shouldn't be hero calling with a balanced range to protect your gto strategy because your opponent isn't adjusting to that he's just playing his hand in that spot for example it's not you know, there's no perfect example, but like there are certain situations where people just don't have balanced ranges and you shouldn't either. And so to win the most money, you're going to want to exploit them. So I think it's, I don't want to say it's overrated. It's very important. I think it's, we've, we've come a little bit too far, at least in the, in the mainstream community now in terms of GTO. And it makes sense because the best players are talking about it so much because they're using it at the highest levels. And then what you have happen is people playing one, three at the win thinking they need to play GTO all the time. And they're like, Oh, well I called because it, you know, I, I had to, I'm at the top of my range. So they give some, some nonsensical excuse when they're playing against a belligerent tourist who's never thinking about anything other than his own two cards. You don't need to worry about GTO, but people take it a little bit too far in my opinion. So uh, I would encourage people to really use like common sense and judgment, like when they're playing against which players they need to use GTO and in which situations. 
you know, and then apply the, the strategy that is best fitting for that moment. And you want to be continually adjusting to figure out what's the best strategy to apply in real time. Uh, really good. All right, let me shift gears. Um, that wasn't a shotgun answer, by the way. I'm sorry for that. No, 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 that's fine. Actually, it was great. It's phenomenal. And I think that's, that's part of what we're learning is, you know, GTO is, is more optimal when you're playing against people that are also playing GTO. Um, and, and I think you, you can lose a lot of value by playing GTO against people that you should be playing an exploitive approach toward. Um, if, we're, if we're shifting gears here a little bit, uh, on the podcast we've talked about and we've had guests that have argued for never open limping and we've had guests that have argued for, you know, there's a time and a place for having a, an open limping strategy. Uh, curious your take on, on that deal. So open limping, I just want to be clear what we're talking about. Yep. You're talking about the first one in the pot yep. or limping Correct. behind other people? Because I think first it's one to, First one to voluntarily put chips in the pot. Uh, we've, we've heard it said you should never be, if you're the first one to put chips in voluntarily, it should always be either a fold or a raise. Uh, uh, but others have said, no, there, there's, a, there's a good argument for uh, being the first one to put chips in the pot and actually limping and having a strategy. Yeah, I mean, that. you could make a winning strategy out of both, right? Like the default, the default play is just always razor fold. That's sort of like always correct, I guess, from like in terms of what a GTO robot would do. He would never open limp. Um, he would just play a range that allows him to only raise or fold and condense his range appropriately. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't profitably limp. It just means that the reason why limping is generally not profitable is because people do it incorrectly. They raise with their strong hands and they limp with their garbage hands. So when they limp, they never have anything. And when they're faced with a raise from someone behind them, now they're suddenly either limp folding or limp calling out of position with a garbage hand, which is both of which are losing plays. Mm -hmm. If you construct a balanced limping range or you limp with a reason that is better than just, I have eight, five suited and I want to play this hand. But if you limp for a deeper reason, um, for example, you are not likely to get raised behind you. You have a hand that plays better in a limped pot but not necessarily in a raised pot, maybe something like, I don't know, Jack nine of diamonds or something or pocket fives and you're really deep and you're not likely to get raised and you want to play a multi-way pot with someone or pocket sixes maybe. And someone has smaller pairs. Um, like you could find cases for limping where you're not going to get outplayed and you're going to outplay other people and you could potentially win a big pot just if you play well post-swap as well. So it's, you know, your ability to limp also depends on how good you are post-flop and you have to be pretty, you know, good at navigating the tr terrain post-flop in order to profitably limp pre-flop because you're going to be playing a lot more post-flop poker uh, in limped pots. So you have to be able to win pots creatively without hands and good at hand reading uh, to be able to profitably limp regardless of your range. So it's, it's, it's a multifaceted sort of approach. And I think people just sort of uh, where it gets misunderstood and where people do it badly is they just play limping poker on level one, where, like I said, they're limping with weak hands and raising with good hands. And that makes them very exploitable to anyone that's paying attention. Yeah, that's, that's great. Okay, uh, shifting to bet sizing post-flop, and you know we can talk a lot about when you should continuation bet and when not, but let's, let's assume that you opened a pot and you got called 
and then assume that you are going to uh, continuation bet for whatever reason. Uh, yes. We've, we've had different perspectives on size of that continuation bet in terms of some would argue, you know, make us make a small, make it in that 30 to 35% range uh, and try to be consistent with that. Some would say, you know, make a bigger, uh, maybe a two thirds pot and make, you know, be consistent with that. And then others have argued, you know, there's a lot of factors, you know, it's, it's texture of the board. It's a lot of those things, it's type of player again, it's size of stack, you know, that, that really, it's okay to vary your bet. You don't have to be. Consistent. So let's talk about the different factors here. So the, the first thing is from a GTO standpoint, you're going to want to be C betting different sizes on different textured boards. An A7 Deuce Rainbow board warrants a different C bet size than something like a 986 two, two flush draw board. So, boards that have drier textures can warrant smaller C bets because ranges are more polar. In other words, your equity is going to be either way ahead or way behind on an A7 Deuce board. If you have pocket, if you have Ace King, you're either going to be crushing your opponent or he's going to have you crushed if he has you beat. So, uh, you don't really need to see bet that big, and it protects your range and allows you to bet with more of your range when you see bet smaller, which which is generally a good thing. That's why people are see betting a lot smaller is because it allows them to bluff more profitably with more of their range. More of their range can bet when they bet smaller. So that's generally a good strategy. On but on wetter board textures or textures where the equities are closer or your opponent's going to float more often you want to probably be C betting bigger to cut down on his implied odds. Uh, and you want to be C betting less often on boards like, you know, Jack 10, eight, you're not going to be able to C bet as much of your range on that board. So when you do bet, you're going to want to bet bigger. Um, then there's the, then, then there's X, then there is analyzing it from an exploitative standpoint, which is, you know, what is, what are you trying to accomplish? What, types of hands is your opponent going to call with? Is he going to call you narrow on the flop? Is he going to float on the flop? What do you think he has? Is he the type of player that's going to call you down light? Uh, do you want to build a pot and get it all in by the turn of the river? Like, it, it, so then there's all the exploitative factors to consider. And you basically want to look for where the exploitative circle and the game theory circle sort of intersect or overlap and, and try and make that decision there. So for example, if I... I'm trying to trap my opponent and hang him and keep him in the pot. And that tells me to bet small. And at the same time, I want to balance my range because I'm playing against a good player and I want to keep my range wider. And that tells me to bet small. Then I'm going to bet small on a textured board, like a seven deuce, you know? So you're kind of trying to look for uh, multiple different reasons to do the same thing. And uh, that's generally the, the, the area, the direction I go, but uh, like it's, I wish there was a simpler answer. You know, we're playing, you know, chess, not checkers. There is no one size fits all. So you can't really answer questions of this nature in any other way than a long form answer of saying it depends. You right. know, like you can't really, um, if there was a one size fits all answer, we'd be playing checkers, you know? So that's just something to always keep in mind. Yeah, no, and I appreciate your insight because, you know, we, we hear a lot of people here. We hear a lot in the show, we hear, you know, it depends. And I think, uh, which, is, which of course it does, but one of the things that we're trying to dig into as recreational players is understanding more about it depends based on what, you know? So I think, you know, your answer was great because it helps gives us some parameters. Okay, okay, I know it depends, but help me know what are those factors that it really depends on. And so that was a good, a, a good help in that way. 
Um, I just want to have one more question for you and then we can close up. I know we're, we're running out of time, but I'm curious what you would consider now at this stage in your life and your poker career, what is your biggest edge at the table? That I really understand people and what they're likely to do in any given situation. Like I, I'm just really good at everybody has their thing, right? So if you watch like tennis, basketball, like what, what is, you know, everyone good at? Everyone's good at something. You know, there's, there's centers, there's forwards, there's guards, there's, and then everybody within those fields, right? Within the center forward guard, everybody has a different sort of skill set. Some people are bigger, some people are faster, some people are dribble better, some people shoot better, some people pass better, right? And so if I look at myself at the poker table, I have many of shortcomings like anybody. Um, but where I shine is that I'm really good at understanding what people are likely to do in any given situation and understand the psychology of how a person is thinking and what they're thinking against me. And second is that I really take the mental game to the highest level and I do everything I can to be in the best shape possible physically and mentally to play my A game all the time so that I'm always like, in peak mental condition to perform a game level poker. And that allows me to concentrate for 12, 24 hours at a time when I need to and be at the, be at my a game in the 15th hour when everybody else is tired. I think I'm making very high level decisions. Um, and, and I work extremely hard on that. So those are, those are my edges at the table. And, 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 and that's where, you know, I, I, I think people need to bet on their strengths. And so I, I I've really doubled down on, on that throughout the years and gone even more uh, in depth into maintaining and gaining and, and, and pursuing my edges. Oh, that's great stuff. Well, let's wrap up. Uh, tell us a little bit more about consciouspoker.com as well as some of your speaking stuff and how people can connect with you, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, or whatever. So for the poker stuff, like if you want the poker strategy, head over to consciouspoker.com. We have awesome free content, uh, tons of blogs. I wrote most of them myself. And there's like a 12-page guide on cash game poker strategy or a 10-page guide on tournament poker strategy. It's all free. And it's great stuff. It's like beginner, intermediate, advanced, expert. Um, there's free downloads, there's free guides, there's our preflop charts, our hand reading system. We have push fold charts for people that want to play tournaments, uh, all the way up to 15 big blinds, totally solve the, the poker game for them that want to just memorize, you know, basic, uh, tournament strategy, uh, preflop strategy. So there's, there's so much content there. Um, and if you subscribe, you'll get, you'll get, um, some awesome content as well. That's totally free. If you want that next level, we have a pro membership program, uh, which includes monthly group coaching, uh, a Slack group modified, mod- moderated by myself and a conscious poker coach. And you get priority access to submitting your hands to everybody in the community as well as myself to review them. And then we have, you know, video members area where we have uh, weekly straining strategy videos that are my, some of my best content put out every week where I walk people through my exact decision-making process. So that's some awesome content we have that are, you know, is very accessible to everyone. We, it's, it's affordable and, and free or very affordable. Um, and then if they want to get in touch with me, like, you know, all the conscious poker, we have our social media. But if you want to get in touch with me personally, I'm at Alex Torelli everywhere. Like on Instagram, I'm very active. Twitter. Facebook, um, like wherever. Uh, so I'm very active. I read all my messages and I read all my emails and I try to respond to all my comments. Um, so definitely get in touch with me. Like I, I'd say Instagram or Twitter, uh, is probably the best place. Um, 
and I'm looking forward to meeting you guys and connecting and, and thanks for your time today. And I appreciate uh, you guys listening and hearing my story. And I look forward to meeting you guys, even if it's just virtually. Yeah. Well, thanks Alec. I mean, I'd love to have you on and uh, hopefully you'll be, you'll come back on in the future as we, so we talk about all the bracelets you win and all the big cash games that you won <laughs> and all of those things. Uh, any, you got uh, it. Thanks up, for having me. Uh, yeah. Any, any final uh, words of wisdom to the folks out there? Follow your heart. Love it. All right. Thanks, Alec. Thanks for your time. Cheers, guys. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alec. I appreciate you taking the time. Good insights. Good stuff there. Hey, if you want to start wearing uh, some Rec Poker merchandise, we got a lot of options for you. Uh, there's no uh, no formal agreement. We're just asking people that, hey, if you like the podcast, if you want to help us spread the news about what we're doing and be sort of a brand ambassador for us, we'd love to have you. You could either get some adhesive patches or some sew-on patches, or now we actually have some merchandise available. We've got shirts, we got hats, we got sweatshirts, uh, some Raglan shirts as well. Uh, all of them look really good. I've worn them myself several times, and I, I love the feel. I think they look really good. You can find those at floptheworld.com slash poker, or just go to floptheworld.com and you can see that we've got a section there dedicated to rec poker stuff. So check that out as well. Uh, again, if you take your picture of yourself playing a tournament uh, in one of the, either with the patch or the merch, we'll mention you on air. If you get in a winner's photo, post that on Twitter, tag me so I'm aware of it, and you'll get entered into a drawing to win 50 bucks. We do that once a quarter and we'll mention you on air as well. So uh, help us spread the word about what we're doing. Also, if you have input, uh, if you have suggestions, feedback, good, bad, ugly, whatever, let me know. Uh, we don't know what you're thinking unless you tell us, so uh, that would be greatly appreciated. You can uh, do that through Twitter, at RecPoker, the Facebook group, RecPoker, or email me directly, stevefredland at gmail.com. And if you have other ideas for uh, hands that you want us to break down or for interviews you want us to do, please shoot me those as well. So with that, thanks to Running Aces for sponsoring the show. Thanks to you for listening, and good luck on the felt. <laughs>